Our gracious Heavenly Father, indeed, as the song says, the only reason why we're able to be here, Lord, is because of Christ, your Son. Thank you for um, his perfect life, his atoning death uh, on the cross for our sins. Oh, Father, who are we um, but people who are saved by your grace and are sustained by your grace? I pray that this uh, morning, that, Lord, you would uh, help us to have attentive ears, teachable hearts. Help us to remember, Lord, that when your word is opened, you speak. And so we want to be people who are attentive listeners, who are delighting in your word and reflecting deeply upon it so that we might apply it to our lives. Father, help us to walk away changed people today as your spirit works to illumine our hearts, to cause us to um, understand these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, turning your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. We started um, a series looking at this text in particular, and I told you that it's it's a passage that is uh, dense and just uh, so substantial uh, as, as, as far as the truths that are contained in it, as well as the implications and application for our lives. And so we want to spend uh, enough time looking at this text because everything uh, really that Titus has said in chapters 1 and 2 um, is um, founded upon the grace of God in 2.11 through 14, as well as everything that comes after flows from this key text in Titus. So let me read it for us. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Zealous for good deeds. Billy Graham, who many of you are very familiar with, tells of an instance early in his ministry when he was driving through a small town in the south and the police officer uh, stopped him because he was going about 10 miles over the speed limit. Uh, Graham quickly admitted his guilt to the officer as the officer approached the car, but the officer still told him that he needed to appear before the local judge of that area. So when he appeared before the local judge, the judge asked him, said, how do you plead, sir, guilty or not guilty? To which Graham replied, guilty. The judge then said, that'll be $10, a dollar for every mile you went over the speed limit, which tells you how long ago that was. A mile, a dollar per mile. Wow. Must have been back in the 1500s or something. Suddenly the judge recognized the the famous minister that it was Billy Graham. And he said to him, well, um, you have violated the law, so you still have to pay the fine, having found out that it was Billy Graham. And he said to him, um, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to pay the fine for you, which he proceeded to do. He took out a $10 bill out of his wallet and he uh, attached it to the ticket. And then on top of that, he asked if he could take Billy Graham out and buy him a steak dinner. Nice. That, said Billy Graham, is how God treats repentant sinners. That's grace. When instead of God giving us what we deserve, uh, the just pen- penalty and punishment for our sins, what does he do? When we trust in Jesus Christ, 
um, he puts that, our sin, upon Jesus. And instead, what does he give, give us? He gives us the righteousness of Christ. That is the great exchange, isn't it? That instead of judgment in Jesus Christ, when we put our faith in Jesus, we are clothed in his righteousness, and we receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone is what makes Christianity so precious and so unique. Um, it is said that C.S. Lewis once attended a conference where there were various religious leaders and philosophers who were uh, coming in to debate certain things, and a heated discussion arose before C.S. Lewis ever got there concerning the question, what makes Christianity different from all other religions in the world? And this led to a heated debate. So when C.S. Lewis got there, he asked, what's all the fuss about? And when told what the debate was about, he said, well, that's an easy one. That's an easy answer to that question. He said, what makes Christianity unique or precious or different, it's grace. Grace is what makes Christianity unique. Grace is what makes Christianity glorious and distinct from any other religion. And I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. The heart of the Christian gospel And the thing that every single day I wake up and marvel about, even in my own life, is that a sinner like me who deserved God's punishment could be rescued from his sins based upon my faith in Jesus Christ. Not based upon our morality, not paid for by the currency of our own good deeds, not by religiosity or religious service, not because we give to so many humanitarian efforts, It is because of Jesus' substitutionary atonement on the cross for us that God can offer us the gift of salvation. Isn't that a glorious truth? A marvelous truth. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense, as someone has put it. God's riches at Christ's expense for sinners who deserve hell and judgment and condemnation. And it is this transforming grace that we see in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. This amazing, glorious grace is what I want us to continue to see. And this passage, as I said, is so dense and so rich here. Paul, in one sentence in the Greek, verses 11 through 14, is expounding upon the glorious, amazing nature of the grace of God. That it's marvelous, that it's beautiful in all of its intricacies and in all of its aspects. And I told you that God's grace can be compared to the most precious of diamonds, You know, a diamond, if you took a diamond, you can admire and appreciate its beauty and its loveliness and its intricacy by looking at it from different angles or or viewpoints or perspectives. Well, that's what I want us to do with God's grace. I want us to look at it as the the most precious of diamonds. And yet, last last week, we talked about the fact that from one angle, we can say that um, God's grace is amazing because it is a saving grace. It's a saving grace. And what I want to do even now is just rotate that little diamond of God's grace and look at it from a different perspective and see that it is also a sanctifying grace. I want us to see that God's grace doesn't just save us from the punishment and the penalty of our sins, but God's grace empowers us to live a life of victory. God's grace sanctifies us. Sanctification is the process of becoming more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. And what we see in this passage is that the same grace that saves is the same grace that is dynamic and continues to work in us by the Spirit of God, by the guidance of God's Holy Word, as we submit to His Word to become more and more like Jesus. 
That's why Paul says in Philippians 1, 6 to the Philippians, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, uh, meaning God, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God began this work by his grace, and God continues this work as we grow to be more and more like Jesus. You know, Jerry Bridges, who uh, was one of my heroes in the faith and passed away, I think, last year or the day before, um, writes, uh, wrote much of the importance of what he called preaching the gospel to yourself daily. And maybe when we hear that as believers, as Christians, we think, preaching the gospel to myself? I mean, I thought that if I'm a Christian, I mean, the gospel is for non-Christians. I'm saved. I'm a believer. Why do I need the gospel again? And he made the point from the Word of God again and again that the gospel is for both non-Christians and for Christians. Because not only did we abandon self-trust and self-reliance, upon conversion, but throughout our Christian love, beloved, we only live and pursue holiness by the grace of God. By the grace of God, we're only able to obey because of the grace of God. Because we are empowered by the Spirit of God to be holy people who walk in godliness. So we want to see, secondly, that God's grace is a sanctifying grace. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. The sense there is that the grace of God has come with saving power. And we talked about the fact that Jesus is the personification on earth in His incarnation of the grace of God. But look at verse 12. This grace instructs us or is instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires on the one hand, and on the other hand, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That word they're instructing is expanding upon the grace of God that saves and tells us that the same grace, the same unmerited, undeserved favor that saves us, that rescues us from the punishment and the penalty of our sin is the same grace that continues to work in us to teach us, to educate us, to train us. In fact, that same word instructing there appears in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, when fathers are instructed to bring up their children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. It's that word discipline in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, which has to do with parental training, which includes teaching, which includes the impartation of truth, but it also includes admonishment and correction. That's why we can translate this training, instructing or training. Grace is like a a parent that instructs us, that that trains us to pursue holiness. You know, in the olden days as well, they used to hire sometimes people to come in, a schoolmaster, if you will, to educate or train the children in the home under the, the watch of the parents. So grace can be personified also as a, not only as a parent, but as a schoolmaster. That's what grace is. C.H. Spurgeon writes this, quote, Grace the Savior now becomes grace the teacher. Grace not only saves, but undertakes our training. All Christians become learners in God's school of grace. I like that. John Stott wrote this, God's grace does not offer a once-for-all deliverance from evil ways, but trains people to renounce them continually. I like that. Grace is like a school teacher working in and through us to make us more and more than more holy, excuse me. See, being a Christian is not about just getting some get-out-of-jail-free card. 
Being delivered and rescued from hell and condemnation, though we praise the Lord for that, right? Being a Christian is not just about that, however. It's not about making some profession of faith at some point that carries no implications and no application for your life. It's not easy believism, where we just believe and we profess something and it has, it's got no um, uh, implications for the way that we live. No responsibility now for the way that we live. Christianity and being a Christian is about making a commitment. That's what faith is. Faith is a commitment, a determination to never go back to who you and I used to be as people. Because we remember the darkness that we walked in. We remember that we, are, we were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. We no longer want to go back to that. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that's speaking of our union with Christ, the fact that we are connected inseparably to Christ, i.e. synonymous with being a Christian, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. A new creation. The old things have passed away. That is those things that we were living for before. Those sins, that darkness that we dwelt in. Behold, new things have come. When you're a, you commit your life to Christ and there's this, that, that transformation the, by the Spirit of God, that conversion, you, you are now a new creation. God places new desires in your heart. Yeah, you're not perfected anymore. It's not that you will never struggle with your sin anymore. But now you long to be like Jesus. Now you, you have this new orientation and perspective and outlook of life that everything that you want to do in life is for the glory of your King. You no longer want to be that old person anymore. You want to live for Jesus, the one who died for you, who died on the cross for your sins, that you might live, have quality of life in the present, even despite the sufferings of this present world. And He also gives you quantity and quality of life for eternity beyond this present world. You want to live for Him. You long to be holy. And yes, there are struggles and seasons of life, where you may have, um, you know, might not respond well to things, even patterns of sin. But the true believer will always, by the grace of God, persevere and endure until the end. Amen? John Owen wrote this, For the Christian, sin is a burden that afflicts you, rather than a, pl- than a pleasure that delights you. That's a difference. For the Christian, sin is a burden that afflicts you, rather than a pleasure that delights in you. I like that. I like that. Christians progressively, continually are growing to hate sin more and more and to love righteousness. I don't know about you, but the Lord saved me in 1993. Um, I did not realize just how much of a sinner I was back in 1993. I knew that I was a sinner, a wretched sinner. I knew that I needed the righteousness of Christ. I needed His forgiveness. But I'll tell you what, since 1993, I have only grown to see just the level and the depth and the degree of my sin. And, the, and that just magnifies all the more the unmerited, undeserved favor and kindness of God in Jesus Christ. Wow. We are great sinners, but Christ is a great, great Savior. And we long to be holy and we want to be set apart. We long to be righteous like Him. Now I want you to notice in verse 12 that this training, this sanctifying grace, um, uh, the, the training that, that, that God um, effects in us, it has both ne- negative and positive elements to it. 
Both a negative and a positive training is this training that we offer. Okay? And we see this in verse 12. What does grace train us to do? Well, first of all, it trains us to say no to sin. Look at negatively in verse 12. It says, instructing us, this grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. To deny there means to abandon, to renounce, to say no to is the idea. To say no to. And we understand that at conversion, we were born again whenever that moment was. There was a sense in which we definitively abandoned. Repentance means that we turn from our sin and turn to Christ by faith. There was a definitive moment of time when that took place. We are positionally righteous before the Lord. We have been justified in Christ Jesus. But there is a sense in which now we live out the result or the implications or the ramifications of our um, uh, justified state in Jesus Christ. And so that's what this is describing here. What are we to say no to continually in the Christian life? He says ungodliness and worldly desires. Ungodliness means any, any, any godless conduct, wicked conduct, that is not consistent with the character and the word of God. Anything that dishonors God. Anything that is an affront to His holy character. Anything that, that counters righteousness and upright living as revealed in His Word. For us as believers, it's, it's conduct as, as children of God that betrays God our Heavenly Father. Because you see, as believers, we're children of God. And when we sin and we practice ungodliness, it leads to a breach in our relationship with God. Think about that. Don't just always view God as a believer or be in danger of viewing Him as this, this judge from heaven who is constantly upon you and He's going to bash you in the head with punishment. As your heavenly Father, you grieve your heavenly Father when you practice ungodliness. There's a breach in your relationship with Him. And as a heavenly, as, as a, your Father, He will bring a parental discipline and consequences upon you given that relationship as opposed to judgment. He will discipline you as his child. So that's what ungodliness means. It's any conduct, even for the believer, that betrays God. That leads to a breach in our relationship with him. But also ungodliness has to do with, according to Romans chapter 1, ignoring the very existence of God. Paul says in Romans chapter one eighteen. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And he goes on to talk about the fact that people suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness and ungodliness. They don't acknowledge him in their lives. They don't live for his glory. They disregard the God of the universe and they function autonomously. They don't function according to his rules for living in his creation. That is also ungodliness. Godlessness. On this criteria, even a very moral, upstanding person who is very successful according to the world standards, who has a lot of possessions and a lot of has been very successful in man's eyes, who maybe is a great business person, maybe has a lot of earthly possessions, if he does not live acknowledging God and living for the glory of God and using those things to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, he is just as much of a godless person as the explicitly explicit sinner who practices a such thing as. As, a, as homosexuality. They're equally godless. 
Because he does not live accountable to God. He lives autonomous. He is a self-ruling individual. Well, as believers, we are not to be ungodly. We are to live God-conscious. We are to live every single day of our lives remembering that we live accountable to our Heavenly Father. And that we are to answer to Him in everything that we do. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says to the Ephesians, reminds the Gentiles and non-Christians that at one point they, were with, they had no hope and without God in the world. They didn't regard God. They didn't acknowledge their Creator. That's what ungodliness means. But notice God's training of us in verse 12 goes even deeper than external conduct. He says that grace trains us to say no to worldly desires as well. That word desires is the word epithumia, which can be uh, used in different contexts. It could be uh, good desires or evil desires, depending on the context. Here it's, it's got a negative connotation referring to evil, sinful desires. Notice he attaches the word, the word worldly, worldly desires, by which he means not so much the, the physical world as we know it, but those things concerning our, the evil world system that we live in and we're exposed to that are anti-God, that are worldly, that don't take uh, God into consideration. Such things as sexual immorality, such things as selfish ambition, such things as selfish pursuits for self-vanity and vainglory, disregarding God and what He thinks about those things, anger, hatred, unforgiveness, abusive speech, adopting the world's thinking patterns and the world's opinions rather than looking to the Word of God. All of those things that have to do with, with the world system in which we live are things that the Christian no longer is to live for. See, there is a difference between being in the world and not being of the world, right? We are in the world, but we are not to be of the world. Which means that we are to be engaged in this world and be an influence for Jesus Christ. But we are not to be adopting the world's philosophies or thinking about various things. Because thinking drives behavior. And if we think like the world around us, instead of being renewed in the spirit of our minds by the word of God, then guess what? You are going to be led to ungodliness and unrighteousness and wickedness. And before you know it, you're living just like the, the, the pagan who doesn't have Jesus Christ. 1 John 2.15 says this, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world, If anyone loves the world, listen to this, the love of the Father is not in him. You love the world. You're intimate with the world. You appropriate into your life the thinking of the world, and that is the pattern of your life. It shows that you don't have a relationship with your Heavenly Father. That's the hardest thing, isn't it? Of realizing that. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, those things that the flesh desires, that are counter to God's will, the lust of the eyes, vain glory, vanity, everything that we look at, that we covet, that is anti-God, and the boastful pride of life, such things as self-fulfillment, selfish pursuits, success in the eyes of the world, rather than a God-glorifying life, the boastful pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Clear line in the sand being drawn there. And the world is passing away. And also its lusts, 
but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Forever. James chapter 4, verse 4 says this. Listen to this. You adulteresses. And he was writing to uh, Jewish believers who were struggling with the world. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James says to these believers, "Get you know what your problem is? You are unfaithful to God, your husband. It brought back the picture for these Jewish believers, I'm sure, the audience in the book of James, to the Old Testament when the Israelites were often told by the prophets in judgment, you are a bunch of adulterers. Why? Because God was their God, and they were set apart, the nation of Israel, for God. And in being idolaters and living for themselves, they were being unfaithful to God. They were being adulterers. And James says to his audience, you are intimate with the world. Be warned, if you are loving the world, you are an enemy of God. And you show, essentially, that you are not a believer. You are not a Christian. And the true believer hears those kinds of words and says, I don't want to be unfaithful to my Heavenly Father. I don't want to do that. I need to confess my sin. I need to be renewed and be reminded of what Jesus, that fact that Jesus died on the cross for these sins. So Lord, please forgive me. I I am reminded again that this is why Jesus, my Savior, died for those sins so that I would be continually forgiven and so that I could be renewed to walk in holiness. That's the heart of the believer. When you hear exhortations like that from the, in the book of James, the true believer responds by the grace of God to those things and perseveres in holiness and in godliness. So, so Paul says here, Titus, instruct these believers on the island of Crete in a wicked society to say no to what they used to be by the grace of God. To abandon those things. That is not what is to pattern them and characterize them anymore. What other things might we um, say are, are um, temptations for us in this present world that might be considered worldliness, especially in our context here in Southern California or in America, I might say, as believers? You know what's one of those? The love of materialism is worldliness. When you love possessions, it's not that having nice things is sin in and of itself. It's when you attach your happiness and those become a source of your joy and you put those and you elevate those above God that they become sinful things. We live in a very, very materialistic society, don't we? And that is worldliness. For us to long for those things, to lay up treasures on this earth where, where, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal those things. It's worthless to lay up treasures on earth. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, Seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness, and all of those things will be added unto you. And in context, it was those things that you need, not those things that you want. So, worldliness in our culture and the things that we struggle with, beloved, might be materialism. Jesus says, don't lay up treasures on earth. Don't, don't connect or tie your, your uh, happiness and joy to those things. Be about my Father's kingdom. Be about uh, investing those things into eternity. That's what you need to be about. Another area of worldliness, which I think is kind of respectable in um, Christian circles, is the whole issue of not trusting God. Not trusting God. In fact, I want you to go with me to the book of James. I just want to make this point really quick. 
Just put your finger there in Titus. And I want you to see this because this is huge. I think that oftentimes, um, I think because of, you know, maybe messages that we've heard or the culture around us and we want to be holy and we see the rampant wickedness around us, that we have, we, we pick and choose what we define as worldliness. And we define it a certain way. If you drink, if you go out out and party, if you dance, if you do this, these explicit sins, you're a worldly person. If you watch bad movies, you're a worldly person. Listen, James confronts his his, uh, audience, these believers in the book of James, on worldliness, on the fact that they were adulterers, that they were functioning unfaithfully to their heavenly Father. And I want you to note, from the very first uh, chapter 1 of the book of James, what kinds of things he confronts. And eventually, in chapter 4, verse 4, he says, based upon those things, those sins, and that worldliness, you are adulterers. In chapter 1, verse 2, He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And he goes on to tell them, you guys need to trust God and seek his wisdom so that you would respond well to your trials. Why does later on James says you are adulterers on the basis of the fact that you are responding bad negatively to your trials because they were blaming God for their trials. In fact, in chapter 1, he gets into the whole issue of temptation. Every test or trial that God brings to your life, is, is um, based upon how you respond to that trial, it has the potential of becoming a temptation. God tests us. He doesn't tempt us. Temptation is real when we internally begin to question the character of God and His goodness in our lives. And James says, you people, in chapter 1, you need to recognize God doesn't tempt anyone. He tests you, but you need to know that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God only gives good gifts. And for us, as believers, to respond to God's trials and sufferings in our lives, with unbelief and questioning his character and his goodness is for us to be worldly. Because what is characteristic of the world around us? It is godless. It is without God and without hope in the world. They don't consider God. They don't see everything as coming from a sovereign God. So he talks about trials in chapter 1. Look at chapter 1, verse 19. He says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but, every, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all the remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. You want to know another characteristic of functioning in a worldly way where you are not regarding God, continue to not respond to the word of God with obedience. Don't respond to the scriptures. Don't apply the word of God to your life. And later on at the climactic peak of the book of James, chapter 4, verse 4, he says, you adulteresses, you who don't apply the word of God, who are not doers of the word, but are self-deceived people. That's how you're living, Christians. He's trying to get their attention. Chapter 2, look with me in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. We just don't have time to go through all these amazing texts, but 1 through 13 talks about the issue of, of not loving people, but instead being partial towards other people. Practicing partiality. 
Or you treat some and elevate certain people above others. And in so doing, in practicing partiality, you elevate yourselves above people. Or you draw distinctions as human judges between one person over another. James says, don't be those kinds of people. There's only one judge and one lawgiver, and that is God the Creator. He is the one judge and lawgiver. And in practicing partiality and the lack of love, guess what? We practice worldliness, don't we? Because God says we need to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. And so to be partial and to not love one another is to be godless, at least functionally speaking. So there are so many um, other things. He talks about the, the, the issue of the tongue and hatred and unforgiveness in the book of James. All of it leading to the, to the point in chapter 4, verse 4, where he says, You adulteress, says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Your problem is that you are unfaithful to God and His Word, what He calls you to do. That's your problem. See, just to read through the book of James and do a survey. The way that we define worldliness is oftentimes so caricatured by what our culture says and what we see in our culture around us. It's not comprehensively as we look at the Word of God. To be godless is to be a functional atheist, isn't it? See, becoming a Christian, as we look at this instruction to say no to ungodliness and worldly desires... Becoming a Christian not only means that your relationship with God changes in the fact that you, are, you go from an enemy of God to a child of God, but it also means that your relationship with the world is different, isn't it? Your relationship with the world is different. No longer are you locking arms with the world system around you. But you're trying to, to reach the world for Christ. And you fight as a believer, empowered by the Spirit of God, enabled by the grace of God to be an influence rather than to be influenced by the dust of the world, so to speak. That is the battle of the Christian life, isn't it? It's the battle of the Christian life. Now notice in verse 12, not only are we called to say no to sinful conduct, but on the positive side, notice grace teaches us to, to say yes in the sense that we live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. It's always a, a two-pronged process in the Christian life. Kind of like Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 and following, talk about putting off sin and unrighteousness and putting on Christ's righteousness. You have the same idea here. Not only are you to say no to sin and to ungodliness and worldly desires, you are to say yes to a life of uh, lives in, uh, sensibly, righteously, and godly. It's a two-way uh, um, street. It's like the two blades in a pair of scissors, right? That are kind of attached at the pivot point. And those blades in a pair of scissors need to, need to work in conjunction with one another if they're going to cut, if they're going to be effective. So it is in the Christian life. You must say no to unrighteousness and say yes to Christ's righteousness according to His Word. And I'm talking about functionally, practically. So you have that here. The first one that he gives us is personal. He says, you are to be living sensibly. We've seen this word all over the book of Titus. Elders in chapter 1, verse 8, are to be men who are sensible. Why? So that they might be an example of that. To the younger men, older men in chapter 2, verse 2, are to be sensible. 
In chapter 2, verse 5, young women are to be trained to be sensible young women. That implies that the older women who are training them are to model being sensible for these young women. And then in chapter 2, verse 6, Titus says to, to uh, um, uh, Paul says to Titus, Titus, urge the young men to be sensible. It's a compound word that basically means a saved mind. To live in accordance with a saved mind. The ESV translates it self-control. It has to do with cultivating proper godly thinking that leads to a life that glorifies God. I love the translation of sensible of self-mastery. Self-mastery. It's not self-mastery by your own moral bootstraps. It's self-mastery and self-control by the grace of God. By the grace of God. What I love about this word sensible as I've studied it here in Titus is that it's so comprehensive. It has to do obviously with a, a conduct that, that fleshes out um, onto ho- in, in a holy way, yes. But it begins with our thinking. You must be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's where practicing a sensible lifestyle comes from and flows from. A renewed thinking. Look at Romans chapter 12. In verse 1 with me. Put your finger there in Titus. Romans chapter 12. This is a classic text that you should go back to over and over again as a believer. All of the book of Romans, obviously. But this is especially chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Because it draws out the implications of the the saving gospel of God in our lives. Romans 12, verse 1. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God... As a tender pities of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul says, in light of your, the tender mercies of God, in light of the grace of God, His unmerited favor shown to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are to be living for God, for the worship of God, as a living sacrifice daily. That is your reasonable, logical service. Well, how is that going to happen though? Because we still live in this world full of sin and full of struggles and we're tempted to go after the world system. What does this look like if we're going to live a life of worship in light of the fact that we have been saved by the grace of God? Look at verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. It says, you know how you're going to live a life of worship? It's going to be a battle, first of all. And it's going to be, uh, it's, it's twofold. You have to be, he commands them. He says, you cannot be fashioned, modeled after this world. That is what do not be conformed means. Being fashioned after this world. On the other hand, another command, strong adversative conjunction there, but be transformed. It says the complete opposite of being fashioned after this world is that you be transformed. Another imperative, another command. And I love that word, transformed there. It is the word from which we get metamorphosis from, which describes a, a, the act of change or a process of change. No, not too long ago, we went to the museum of of uh, natural science and history, I think it's called, uh, here in, in L.A. And we went into a, uh, one of these um, displays that they have with all these beautiful, majestic butterflies. It's gorgeous. And we enjoyed that. We took a bunch of pictures of those beautiful butterflies. But you know what? Those butterflies weren't always that beautiful, right? They, they weren't. They went through a process of metamorphosis. 
They went from an egg to a larva to a chrysalis to a beautiful butterfly. Eventually, there was a process of metamorphosis, of transformation that these butterflies went through. Well, you know what? It's very similar for the Christian. On the one hand, in Christ, we have been declared righteous. We have been forgiven, reconciled to our maker. We are positionally righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But practically speaking, we have now entered a process called sanctification. The process of becoming more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. And listen, in sanctification, you and I have a role to play in our sanctification. Not in our justification. Our justification is all based upon the finished, perfect life and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Nothing that we do justifies us. It's all Jesus' merits. However, in sanctification, we do work uh, along with the Spirit of God, responding to the Spirit's leading and being guided by the Word of God to respond in obedience so that we would grow to be more and more like Jesus. There's activity. There's an aggressive pursuit in sanctification for the believer. So he says in verse 2 there of Romans 12, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. Notice where transformation for the believer uh, resides. It's as we are renewed in the spirit of our minds. And how does that renewal happen? We have a the wonderful late R.C. Sproul who built his whole ministry on this, this, this theme of renewing the mind, Ligonier Ministries. Because that man understood by conviction that the more that people are exposed to the Word of God, the more that their their thinking changes. They're stripping themselves off of of filthy clothing, figuratively speaking, filthy thoughts and philosophies and opinions. And instead, they're being renewed in the spirit of their minds by the very Word of God. That is how change takes place. Don't think of, you know, when we emphasize Bible reading and we, we, t- we ask you if you are spending time with the Lord in His Word, don't think, oh man, these people are legalists. These people, you know, there's a, a, here at Calvary, the spiritual thing to do is to read your Bible. Listen to me, you need to be in the Word because you need to be confronted with the mind of Christ because you have enough of the world throwing ideas and philosophies at you, left and right, tempting you to sin against God. You need to be shunning that and instead saturating your mind with the Word of God. That's where it's at. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And the idea there is let it make its home in your heart. Not visiting here and there. Saturate your mind so much in the, with the Word of God that it makes its home in your heart. You meditate upon it. You reflect upon it. You delight in it. You long to be in the Word of God. You long to be exposed to God's treasures. Psalm 2 says, How blessed or happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his or her delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. That's where it's at. And it goes on to talk about the stability of a person who is renewed in the spirit of their minds. You see, the Word of God, it it searches the soul, doesn't it? 
It gets into the thoughts and intentions of the heart, as Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 says. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God, it, cut, it, it cuts at the very core of who we are. We can hide things from other people, from other human beings. We cannot hide from the Word of God. That's why James uh, um, talks about the word in James 1 as a mirror that exposes us, that reveals the true nature of who we are and what we need to change by the grace of God. Change happens by the renewal of your, excuse me, of your mind. So I love that word sensible and emphasizing that it begins with your thinking onto a life of self-mastery or self-control by the grace of God. That's how we're called to live as believers, as Christians. Notice verse 12. We'll wrap it up with looking at this one here. He talks about the second word that has to do with others. If the first one, living sensibly, has to do with yourself, the, this one has to do with living um, righteously toward others. Yes, we are righteous in Jesus Christ, but I think the, the focus here, living righteously, has to do with upright behavior that is in conformity to God's standard, but it includes fleshing that out and doing right and good toward others. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 8, it talks about elders are to be those who are devoted to doing what is good, what is beneficial for other people. But it also includes being a person who acts with fairness and justice for the benefit of other people. That's what it means to be to live righteously, to live for the benefit of other people as well as an act of worship before God. That's what he's calling for here. And we've done a survey before of the book of Titus, how time after time after time, Paul says to Titus, Titus, you need to tell these believers that they need to be devoted to good works. They are not saved on the basis of good works, but they are saved unto good works. In fact, look at chapter 2 of, and verse 14 of Titus. It says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. How often do you think about this? That part of the reason why Jesus died for your sins on the cross is that you would be zealous for good deeds. Again, this is not salvation by works. This is, this, this is good works for the glory of God and the benefit of others in light of the fact that God has performed His gracious saving work in your heart and life. In order to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. In order to love our fellow brethren. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, and especially to those of the household of the faith. Christians ought to be known above any other person on this planet for being people who are about righteous works towards other people, who do good, who meet pressing needs. Consequently, if you're called to live righteously toward other people as an outflow of God's saving grace in your life, if you are a person who, is, who, who doesn't serve, that is the pattern of your life, then you are in sin, straight up. If you are a person who is not about meeting pressing needs, being fruitful with the gifts that God has given you and the abilities that God has given you for the glory of God and the edification of His people, if you are not doing good, practicing righteousness towards others, you're in sin. See, many of us like to talk about how busy we are and how much stuff we got going on in life. 
And we have all these trials and all of those things. Listen, everybody has trials. Everybody has difficulties. God doesn't give us a free pass when we go through sufferings because the sufferings of this present world are in abundance and they will never end, beloved. Now, there are seasons of life, absolutely. Seasons of life. But there are some Christians who continually live in this pattern in the state of not serving, of not meeting pressing needs, of not practicing righteousness towards other people. And Paul says, no. Look at what he says in 3.14. He says, our people, Titus, must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. God wants you to be fruitful. God wants you to be using your gifts in the church. God wants you to be doing that for His glory, not for yourself, not for personal accolades. And He wants you to be doing that for the good of your fellow brethren. Micah 6 verse 8 says this, He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. And here it is, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. It's a manifestation of the righteousness of God and His justice, even shown to us in the gospel. We have to be people who are doing good for others, meeting needs, serving other people. Humble worship and kindness in action pleases the Lord. Amen? Well, we'll finish the second point next week. Just remember this. The grace of God that saves is the same grace of God that sanctifies. He who delivers from the punishment and the penalty of our sin will not leave you wallowing in your sin. You have the power within the Spirit of God that dwells in you as a believer by the grace of God to obey God's commandments and to be holy. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the reminder that, Lord, we are people who stand secure in Jesus Christ by his grace. And yet, Lord, also help us to remember that you've called us to be people who say no to ungodliness and worldly desires and be those who live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Why? All of that because we are founded upon your grace, your saving power. Thank you for that. Help us to be people who are faithful to you out of love and gratitude to you and walk in loving obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.